nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. My family took vacation the first week of July, and I was reminded that week, the first week of July 2016, that you may take vacation, but the world does not. I, it seemed that on my vacation week, I was awaking daily to discover bad news in, um, uh, in, in, in current events, and awake again another day to hear of more bad news, uh, discovering that uh, almost every day that week that there is still racial tension in our society, highlighted by the tension that's taking place between law enforcement and African-Americans, discovering uh, one morning uh, that there is still corruption at the very highest levels of our society, of our government. Um, Just recently discovering uh, what is taking place, the terror that's taking place in France, the unrest that's taking place in Turkey. And many of us and many people have been grieving. You just, all you have to do is uh, not only watch the news or read the newspaper, but especially follow social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and you will see how many people in the last couple of weeks have been grieved almost to hopelessness. Have you noticed that? Maybe to hopelessness. Over all of this, asking questions uh, in, in their frustration and discouragement, even in their even in their rage. Questions like, will America ever be healed of racial tension? Will humanity ever rise above injustice and terror and senseless acts of destruction? Will powerful politicians ever lead with integrity? Will God, will God ever intervene? There's one for you. As all of this is taking place and God is watching, will he ever intervene? What is God's perspective on all of this? What is God's response? Psalm 2 actually gives us, as one commentator puts it, a theological perspective for understanding the world's events. And so as as we listen to the psalmist here in Psalm 2, his response to the chaos of his world is insightful. He says in the first three verses, why do the nations rage? 
and the people's plot in vain. Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. One commentator says a way of a way of better understanding what the psalmist says when he says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Those those melodious words are understood by saying this. Why do the nations even bother? That's what the psalmist is saying. Why do the nations who are opposed to God and to his anointed one even bother with their schemes? Now, you see, that's a very different response. People now are shocked and outraged and hopeless over what is taking place in our society and even in our world. He is not. Have you noticed he is not shocked and he is not hopeless in his response? He asks a question, but he's not shocked and he's not surprised about what's taking place all around him as he sees the raging of the world around him. He's not surprised, and neither should we be. Here's why he's not surprised, because he considers in this psalm, as he looks at the raging, which results in conflict, in injustice, in corruption, he knows what God's response is to all of it. In verse 6, God says, he quotes the words of God saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's king is on his throne. And that's the basis of the psalmist's hope. That's the basis of the psalmist's assurance that what the nations are doing, that what a rageful world is doing against its creator will be in vain and will in the end amount to nothing. This anointed person that he speaks of in verse 2, that's the Messiah. Anointed, the word was Messiah. The old Hebrew word or the old Greek word, Christos, the Christ, the Messiah. This is a figure that you're going to see as you read through the Psalms. This is a figure, the Messiah. This is going to keep appearing throughout the Psalms. Many Psalmists cry out for help. They're crying and singing out to God, praying to him for help. Uh, Psalmists ask God for mercy. Psalmists ask God for justice to be done in the world, for justice to be done against those who are oppressing them. Psalmists ask God for forgiveness for their own rebellious acts. Psalmists ask God for hope. And God's answer throughout the book of Psalms again and again is the idea of a Messiah. Of an anointed king that God would use as an agent of justice in the world and an agent of his salvation. So this Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. There are lots of different categories for psalms. There are wisdom psalms like Psalm 1. There are laments. There are praise songs. Well, this is a royal psalm. It was probably written and used for a king's coronation. Maybe for, maybe for David the king's. Uh, It it doesn't indicate that. So in the very least, this was used as a coronation psalm for one of David's ancestors when that person would have become king. And a king's coronation for the Jews, it marked the point at which that king would in a sense become God's heir. Would in a sense become God's son. God would be working 
very intimately through that king, through that anointed one, to bring about God's purposes in Israel and ultimately in the world. So the psalmist says in verses 7 through 9, he quotes the earthly king saying, The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this psalm, if you were listening to this being sung, or if years later you read it or heard it, this psalm would bring an Israelite hope. Through, though, though the world was raging against God and against God's people, the Messiahs, the line of Messiahs would embody God's justice, okay? The Messiah as a figure, either the present one or a future Messiah, was your hope that God would judge the wicked. The Messiah was to be a judge to the wicked, but, and here's where the hope comes from also, a refuge to the righteous. He's a judge and a refuge at the same time. Because you see the psalmist close in verse 12 with these words, blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, as long as God's king was enthroned, there was hope. The king is on his throne. There's hope. There's hope that justice was possible in their world. That peace was possible. That reconciliation was possible. There was hope that unity and order and beauty and creativity were possible because God's king was on God's throne. Zion is Jerusalem, the capital, the place where God's presence rested in the temple. Now, uh, the Psalms, you'll notice this if you go through them. The Psalms were not edited chronologically. They're, they're edited thematically. And if you, now you look at the first two Psalms. So two weeks ago when I was here last, we looked at Psalm 1. Now we're looking at Psalm 2. The first two Psalms are like two pillars to a gateway into the rest of the Psalms. Okay? If you're going to live a life of genuine prayer, if you're going to live a life of genuine worship to your creator, which is what the Psalms show you, you have to understand Psalms 1 and 2. And in Psalm 1, we saw that a person is blessed if she meditates on God's Torah, on God's word. What you see in Psalm 2 is that a person is blessed if he trusts in God's Messiah. That's what you need to live a blessed life in this universe. You need to meditate on God's word and you need to meditate on his Savior. Truth and the Savior. That's what you need for a blessed life. And the New Testament, centuries and centuries later, as you begin to read through the New Testament, you see how the Messiah's role was ultimately fulfilled in the man Jesus of Nazareth. His cousin, John the Baptist, said this about Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You know, you want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You do not want to be baptized with fire. And John explains why his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus didn't do that in his earthly ministry. But see, John, John is giving insight into what he will someday do. We talked in Psalm one about how uh, the blessed life is like a tree planted by streams of water. But, but the wicked life, it, it's like chaff that the wind blows away. 
And so Jesus is, is picking up in Matthew 3, uh, John the Baptist, I'm sorry, is picking up in Matthew 3 on that theme of the chaff being blown away and being burned, and that Jesus himself would do that. John the Apostle, years later, decades after Jesus ascended into heaven, John had a, had a revelation, a vision of what was ha- actually going on above the reality that you and I know in the heavens from God's perspective and what was to come someday. And in Revelation chapter 11, this is the vision that John saw and he recorded it. He said, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And John heard 24 elders around the throne of God, worshiping and saying this, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then again in Revelation chapter 19, John records another aspect of this vision. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. John went on to say he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Through Jesus Christ... God's kingdom has invaded a raging world. And he will return in a military fashion. This isn't the, G, this isn't the plastic baby in the manger in December anymore. He will return in a military fashion to bring full justice, to bring final justice. But now he is invading the raging world as his gospel of peace and reconciliation with God and adoption through the forgiveness of sins. As, as the gospel changes hearts and families and communities, Jesus the Messiah is invading the chaos of a raging world. And that messianic hope influenced the early church in a profound way as it had to respond to the raging world all around them. This view of the Messiah, of a risen Jesus, and what he would return to do, gave the early church hope as it had to respond to the raging world. And here's a great example. Uh, Read the whole book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 4, you see an example of this. The apostles John and Peter were arrested for talking about Jesus in public. Um, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin, arrested them, had them beaten, and said, don't talk about Jesus anymore in public, and let them go. And beaten, uh, happy to get out of jail alive, they went back to their friends in their church in Jerusalem, 
And everybody rejoiced that they were, uh, they were released. And they all prayed together. And in Acts chapter 4, Luke records this prayer. And, and I, I'm going to read part of it to you. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now listen, because they're going to quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now watch this. Listen to what else they pray about. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, I'm sharing this with you because I think that prayer is remarkable. You see here the early church responding to a raging world by what? In prayer. Asking God to work. That God's truth and God's kingdom would advance despite the raging. You don't see them praying, God, would you please convince Caesar that he's ruining our lives? Would you please convince Pontius Pilate and Herod that they need to rule justly? Of course they're praying for these things. Of course that's what they wanted in society and in government. You don't hear them saying, would you tell these people to stop picking on us and throwing us into prison? No. They said, Lord, in light of the threats, in light of the raging, would you allow your gospel, your truth, your salvation to extend despite the raging and maybe even because of the raging in response to it? Okay, so here's a result of how the early church responded to the raging all around them. And I think this is profound. This is just one of the results, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 15. The early church found a way to unite across racial differences. The early church found a way to unite across cultural differences, across class differences. Jew and Gentile, various races and ethnicities, rich and poor, people in military, people in government, slaves... They found a way in the church to worship and live together. And I think that's directly because of how they prayed. And because of the the, the assurance they had that the Lord had set his king on his throne. And that king was Jesus, their savior. So every Christian and every church has an opportunity to devote our passion to trusting Christ rather than raging over what we're seeing and what's being done to us and what's being done to the people that we love and respect. Instead of spending our energy and our passion on raging over what's happening, spending our energy and passion over trusting Jesus that he's on his throne and he's mending and he's healing and he's working even though we can't see what's underneath the surface of the apparent wounds. If you're a Christian, you are not enslaved to living a life of rage in response to everything that's happening. 
you are free to trust that God's king is on his throne. You're not a slave to responding in anger and hopelessness to everything that's going on. As much as you're hurting, as much as other people are hurting, you are free to trust Christ with all of this. And, and, and the blessing of that, if we can do that together, is that the church is in a position, only, only the church, only the church as a people group and as an organization, an organism, an institution, only the church can actually show the world what things are going to look like when Jesus finally completely reigns in every way. Only the church can do that. The church right now can give the world a foretaste of the coming reality. When Jesus finally heals and mends everything and brings everything and everyone to justice, when you can finally see everything that he's been doing behind the scenes, only the church can give the world a foretaste of what that looks like. Isaiah prophesied about it. Behold, he said, we read this earlier today. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind. Stop. Do you not want leaders who are like that? Do you not want leaders in society, in our schools and in our communities, in law enforcement and in the White House and in the military and across the ocean? Do you not want leaders that reign in righteousness, that are, are people that are shelters, that people that are hiding places? Is that not what we long for? And yet Isaiah does not say this is going to happen through, politi- through politics. Through wars, one. Through social justice. All those things are good. But, but that's not what's going to bring it into reality. Streams of water in a dry place like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. The scriptures show that the Messiah brings this into a reality. A day is coming where Jesus will make all things new. And this leaders living and acting like hiding places in the wind, like shelters from the storm, like streams of water, like, like a shade of a great rock in a weary land. Jesus will be this. He will fulfill this. And right now, as his people, you can give the world a foretaste of what it's going to look like. The church has to get this right. And Jesus says, by his grace, we will. Now, let me ask you, um, how... How have you been, ask yourself, how have you been responding to what you're seeing in the news lately? How have you been personally responding to what you see happening on Facebook, what your friends who disagree with you are saying and posting and sharing? As you read articles, as you watch the news, as you consider these events, what, how have you been responding to all the raging? Have you forgotten that Jesus is on God's throne. We read the Apostles' Creed, and what do we say in the Apostles' Creed in the third section? That Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Have you forgotten that? If, if Christians are saying to themselves, what the heck is going on in America? What the heck is going on in our world? And what is God doing? Well, then we need to keep reading our Bibles because none of this is new. 
This is what the world does. As the church, we don't need to do it also. And the hope we have is God saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, let me ask you, maybe you haven't forgotten. Maybe you're ignoring that Jesus is on God's throne. Um, I know some people don't feel accountable to any higher power. I know that some people know there is a God somewhere, but you're resisting him. And I, friend, I want you to think again. The Bible offers the most convincing perspective on why the world still rages and rages and rages, even though the world is trying to stop the causes of the raging. The Bible offers the best perspective on why the world, despite scientific advances, despite medical advances, despite technology, despite population growth, despite time, why the world cannot solve its own problems. And the Bible says in Psalm 2 that the nations plot against their creator and his anointed one in vain. Now, the, word, the Hebrew word for plot in verse 1 is the same word for meditate in Psalm 1. It's the same word. Here's what's going on here. Psalm 1 is saying that, that the righteous who are close to God, who yearn for God, they meditate on his truth, on his wisdom. What Psalm 2 is saying is that those who... Uh, the natural state of humanity is to meditate on how to bump God off. And whether, whether people do that in an outspoken way or just in a subtle, introverted way, your natural state and my natural state without God's help is to say, hmm, how can I bump God off? How can I just live my life without him? How can I speak and act and think as though he's not there? Some people do it in a glorious, rebellious way. Some people do it in a subtle way, and you'll never know because they'll never talk about it. But ask yourself, if you haven't forgotten that Jesus is on God's throne, are you ignoring that he's there? Jesus is coming. And when he comes, what will be your refuge? Where will it be? And whom will it be? Listen, when Jesus comes, he is going to bring judgment. He didn't start that way, did he? When he came the first time, he came as a suffering servant, as a poor man who is abused and mistreated by the world. But when he returns, he is coming as a conquering king, rightfully so. He's the only one in the universe that has the right to rage against what humanity has done to his universe. He's the only one that has the right to rage. We don't have the right to rage. But he does. And when he came the first time, he didn't rage. He came as a servant to serve many. But when he returns, he's bringing judgment. He's bringing justice. He's bringing vindication. He's going to vindicate the name of our creator. He's going to vindicate our creator's holiness and righteousness and beauty and love and justice. He's going to vindicate the oppression against people who have been hurt and abused by wickedness. David failed to do that. David the king and Israel's greatest messiahs all failed to do that perfectly. Jesus will not. 
So either Jesus is your refuge from the raging or Jesus is your damnation because you're a part of the raging. What will it be? What is it for you? Uh, One scholar wrote a great commentary on the Psalms. I'd recommend it to anybody, Derek Kidner. It's a very easy read, but it's profound, it's deep. And he says the greatest summary, the summary of Psalm 2 is that there is no refuge from Jesus. Only refuge in Jesus. Corey Ten Boom wrote The Hiding Place, and it was all about her life uh, during the Second World War, how how she and her sister and their father um, were imprisoned in, in Nazi death camps and labor camps because they had been working with the resistance in Holland um, to oppose the Nazis. Um, and and the, the way they were opposing the Nazis in the 1930s and 1940s, they, they were harboring, secretly harboring Jews in a secret room in their house. Hence the name of the, the book, her account was The Hiding Place, but she says, she writes near the end of the book that the hiding place was really not the secret room. And the hiding place really wasn't their work, their efforts. The hiding place really wasn't the social justice they had engaged in. She said that the hiding place was Jesus Christ. Through all of Europe's raging, that was a family that kept their sanity And were able to do mercy and to act justly because they had allowed Jesus to invade their inner chaos. They were free to serve, to love, to pursue justice and mercy because they weren't part of the chaos. They weren't part of the raging because they allowed Jesus to be their hiding place. They allowed Jesus to come in and restore their own brokenness. Restore the insanity and the chaos and the raging within them. Now, as they saw Jesus on his throne, they were free to serve. They were free to love people who were different than them. People that most of the people in in their communities were were looking upon uh, in a hateful way because Jesus for them was on his throne. So what I'm saying to you is let Jesus do that for you now. Let Jesus be your hiding place. Let Jesus invade as the Messiah is destined to, let Jesus invade the chaos and the raging in your soul that is bent against your creator or is crushed and broken and hopeless because of the horrible things that are happening in the world and that may have even happened to you. Let Jesus be your hiding place. You know, if social justice, as crucial as it is, if social justice is your hiding place, if, if racial reconciliation is your hiding place, your refuge. If, if vengeance or retaliation or giving somebody the cold shoulder is your hiding place, if a political leader or a political party or if your people group is your hiding place, friend, you don't have a hiding place because all of those people and all of those institutions will fail you just like the ancient messiahs failed Israel. And failed the nations. It says at the end in verse 12. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. Maybe it's uncomfortable. uh, To see this apparent paradox that. That the Messiah that is coming. To bring terrible justice. 
upon a broken world is also holding out his hand for you to kiss it. It made me think of The Godfather when Michael Corleone's sister and bro- Fredo, and I can't remember the sister's name, but, but Michael's own siblings conspire against him. They plot in vain to bring down Michael Corleone, and they can't. And Fredo gets it. But the sister, man, I can't remember her name. What is it? Connie. I'm so glad that I have educated people in this room. (laughs) Connie comes to Michael on her knees in tears and begs him for mercy. And Michael holds out his hand. He's so arrogant. He holds out his hand and she kisses it. Jesus is not Michael Corleone. Thank God, Jesus is not like Michael Corleone. James Boyce said this, The hands he holds forth to kiss you are the hands that were pierced by nails when he was crucified in your place. The judge offers us mercy and love and the adoption of his heavenly father. God's king endured everything that people are enduring today and more. Jesus, when he came here, endured injustice. He endured corruption. He endured hate. He endured prejudice and racism. He endured all of it from Gentiles and from Jews, from rich and from poor. The nations plotted against Jesus. Even his own people plotted against him. But the good news is, it was all in vain. Psalm 2 is ultimately talking about Jesus. The nations plotted against him in vain. And the proof was a risen Savior. The risen Jesus is our refuge from all the raging. He's our salvation from it. He's our forgiveness against our own raging. And so you can have confidence In a savior who fulfills the words, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That is the truest reality. While we watch the world rage. As we struggle with our own raging. Let's remember that God's king is on his throne and let's trust him. Jesus is God's answer to our society's mess. And please do not put that burden on politicians. And do not put that burden on any institutions. The Bible says that's idolatry. That is misdirected, sick worship. That's why you're raging. Because you're putting those expectations on people. And institutions. Put those expectations on Jesus. He can handle that. He will handle that. So devote your energy. Not to the raging. Devote your energy to trusting Jesus. Let's devote our energy to trusting him together. And may the faith community. Those who follow Jesus Christ everywhere. But especially right here in this town. Let us show the world. Just a taste of what it will look like when a king reigns in righteousness and princes rule in justice. 
and that they will be shelters in the storm. They will be great rocks of refuge in a weary land. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have set your king on your holy hill. Thank you that Jesus, who promises to return in wrath against all wickedness and corruption and hate and violence. Thank you that Jesus has extended his hand to us. In faith, help us to take it, to kiss it, to trust in him. Thank you that the coming king first came as a servant. Thank you that he was full of love and mercy, that he was gentle and humble in heart. While, while that aspect of your king persists, help us to trust him fully. And we long for Jesus to return to make all things new, to make us new. Help us to wait until he does Help us to pursue love and justice and mercy in his name because he is already preparing the way for it. Amen.